0: Hey, this is Dave Ryder from Newspring Church here in beautiful Perth, Western Australia. Really praying that this message is going to help you. If you'd like some more information about our story, just head to newspring.org.au. Good morning, church. Great to be with you on another fantastic Sunday. Really hope you're ready to work some scripture in and actually hear from God as we dig into our current series, which is called Real Church Problems. Um, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 2. How about you get your Bible ready, um, get your mind in, in a posture of alertness because we've got a bit of work to do today, but I guarantee it's going to be worth it. You know, the term Trojan horse, it's a metaphor that we use in our current day, um, even today in 2020. It's a metaphor that's found its origin in the mythological story of the Trojan War between the city of Troy and the Greeks. And one rendering of the story is that after 10 years of fruitless battle, the Greeks actually thought, you know what, we're going to actually approach this war in a bit of an unorthodox way. So what they did, they called one of their, uh, their master carpenters, his name was Appius, and he said, would you come and will you build a huge hollow wooden horse? And after this hollow wooden horse was built, they actually presented um, this to the city of Troy. They presented it and they left it at the city gate and said, this is a gift to you. This is a gift to one of your gods. And then they left the scene as if to, uh, to say, we're leaving this war, we're leaving this battle. Now, there were some people inside of the city gates, inside of the city walls who were very, very suspicious. They said, no, this is a trick. Get rid of the horse. But there was a majority said, no, this is okay. And they brought the horse in to the city, um, inside of the um, city walls that night unknown to everyone else in the city who was sleeping, unknown to them, inside of this huge hollow wooden horse, there were some Greek warriors, some soldiers. So while everyone else was sleeping, these Greek warriors, they got out of the horse and they actually unlocked the city gate from the inside. And on the outside were the rest of the Greek warriors who had now returned from the island. They um, allegedly um, had um, Deserted too. And you know the rest of the story, as they say, it is mythological history. The term Trojan horse has become part of our modern day vernacular. It's this understanding that something has come from the outside. There is something destructive that has come from the outside and it has deceptively worked its way onto the inside, and as a consequence, there is destruction that is now happening. As a result of this thing, which was from the outside working its way to the inside, something has been compromised. It's a real problem in the world of computer programming. It's actually a really big problem when it comes to churches. And it was a real church problem for the church of Pergamum, the problem of compromise. We're going to read from Revelation 2. I'm going to read from um, uh, verse 12. I'm reading from the NASB today for a particular reason. Verse 12 says this, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name. You did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there some who hold the teaching of Baal, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent or else I am coming to you quickly and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. The city of Pergamos was the capital of Asia Minor. It was renowned for its political power, for its intellectual achievement, and also for its pagan worship. It was a really wealthy city that was given over to luxury, was given over to fashion, and it had a couple of big boasts. One of its biggest boasts was that it had this library of over 200,000 volumes. And this is a day well before the printing press. So you could imagine the effort and what it took to actually have volumes that exceeded 200,000. That was an incredible thing. A second feature of this ancient city was that it had so many pagan temples. So throughout the city, wherever it was, what you would actually see, you would hear and it, you would smell, you would even touch. Intellectualism was everywhere and there was just idolatry that was dripping on every street corner. And it is in this particular city that a church is planted, the church of Pergamum. Now listen to how Jesus begins his address to this church. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum right, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, Once again, before addressing any issues, before actually bringing any correction, Jesus is wanting to broaden their vision of who he is. And he starts talking about swords, which don't really mean too much to us. I mean, in 2020, we look at a sword and we might say, that's nice. But we kind of think to ourselves, yeah, that actually belongs in a different age, in a different culture, in a different era. But for the original hearers of this letter, they knew immediately what that word sword or what a sword um, symbolized in their current culture. It symbolized rulership and it symbolized authority. And what's really interesting is the type of sword that Jesus explains that he is the one who is holding this type of sword. Very different to the type of sword that they would have been um, seeing every single day. They would have seen the Romans and the Romans had a very particular sword. In fact, history tells us that the design of the Roman sword was actually part of the genius of their dominance. They had little, like medium-sized, little daggery kind of swords. And you would have seen it in movies or maybe in pictures. And it was really effective for close-to-close combat because it was so short that they could actually pierce and they could cut from a very, very small distance. Now, the sword Jesus describes is very, very different. It is a huge sword and it's actually a double-edged sword. One theologian said this sword, it actually cuts going in and it cuts coming out. It is a huge sword. And what Jesus is saying is that he has ultimate authority. He is actually saying that no matter what authority you are seeing in the world right now, whatever dominance you see right now, whatever rulership you are seeing right now is nothing. It is almost like it is like a little dagger compared to the all surpassing might and authority that Jesus has. So this is a, a vision of the authority of Jesus, which is really important for a church that is in this culture, which seems to be so dominating and so domineering. It's really important for them to know. And after this, Jesus, once again, he gives them this huge compliment. He says in verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and that you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So Pergamum's not as big, not as large as Ephesus or, or, or Smyrna, because it's not on the coast as you're probably looking right now. Uh, um, emphasis on, e- Ephesus and Smyrna, they, they were on the coast. There was a great um, place, cities of trade and, and commercial. But Pergamum, it was not located on the coast, but it was the center for education. It was a center for the arts, and it was a center for pagan worship. It's most popular deity. We still have um, evidence of this deity today. It was a serpent god who was renowned to supposedly healing the sick. And we still have coins we've discovered and we found of this serpent actually engraved in it. So from all around the world, all around the known world, people would actually come to Pergamum for, um, to receive healing. Um, so it meant there was lots of people always around. There was also this really dominating altar where people would come and they would worship Athenae and Zeus. So so all over, wherever you look, there was evidence and there were structures and there were altars where pagan worship uh, was actually um, done throughout the entire city. And above this, of course, were the demands of Caesar, that Caesar would be worshipped. So you can understand that this is a really, really hard place for Christians to live. This is the kind of city, the kind of place where every single um, intersection of your life is actually met with pagan worship. doesn't matter if that's socially or in your workplace or even like going out and celebrating, having festivals. Whatever society did, there was an intersection with pagan worship. So what do you do as a Christian? When your allegiance is not to Caesar, when your allegiance is not to a pagan God, but your allegiance is to Jesus Christ, all of this stuff was intertwined and this really made life very difficult. And this is the reason why Jesus says, I know where you dwell. I know where you dwell. This is a church that is living in a place where there is this conflict, where there's this increasing intolerance to Jesus' church, to the point that at least one of them, one of their brothers, Antipas, has already been martyred. And even as you kind of look to this, look at the kind of language that Jesus is using. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is where Satan's throne is. Jesus is letting them know, I know that this isn't just any ordinary place because whatever we may interpret that to mean, Satan's throne, every theologian can appreciate and agree on this. The closer you get to a throne, the more intense the power or the authority of that throne is. And for Jesus to say, I know where you live. I know where you dwell. You are right there. Smack bang where Satan's throne is. The intensity is red hot. And Jesus knows all about that. He knows all about that. And what he goes on to say is really, really interesting and really, really important. And a reason why I'm using the NASB um, translation. Verse 13, I know where you dwell where Satan's throne is and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas. That language, hold fast, is a great word picture for us. Because Jesus is saying that even though you are in the midst of it, even though you're right next to Satan's throne, you hold fast. You hold fast. But in the same way that people are holding fast, there's also a complaint. There's also a complaint. Many in the church, this is what's happening, many in the church are holding fast to Christ. But there are some who are holding on to something else and it's caused compromise within the church. From verse 14, we read, But I have a few things against you because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam and kept teaching Balak, or who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way are holding the teaching of the Nicolaitans, The praise, the commendation is actually for the many who are holding on to Christ. The complaint is for the some who are holding on to something else. And in order to actually expose this real church vulnerability, this real church problem, in order to bring that to the surface, the Apostle John actually uses a story which would have been very familiar to to the church at the time and should be really familiar to us, by the way, as well. The story which is found in Numbers 22, the story of Balaam and Balak. And what happens in Numbers um, 22 is that we have the scenario that Israel's moving from the wilderness, and they are approaching the promised land. And as they are moving towards the promised land, they are in uh, a war and they are taking territory. And what Yahweh, what God is doing, He has blessed them to such a degree that they are taking territory after territory after territory. In fact, even the times when they're being ambushed, they're still having victory because God's hand's upon them. And all of the other nations are watching this. They're seeing this. They're acknowledging something is up here. And then they come to the cusp of the territory of Moab. And the king of Moab is looking at this. And as you can probably understand, he's feeling a little bit concerned about this. So we read in, verse, uh, in chapter 22 of Numbers, verse 2 to 3, uh, about Balak, the king. Balak, son of Ziphor, the Moabite king, had seen everything the Israelites did to the Amorites. And when the people of Moab saw how many Israelites they were, they were terrified. So Balak, he's seeing this, he's knowing this is happening. And he reasons to himself that the reason why Israel is having such decisive victory after victory after victory is because their God, Yahweh, has blessed them. It's the blessing that he recognizes. That is why they are having such a decisive victory after victory after victory. So he thinks to himself, this is what I need to do in order to have a chance. I need to get a prophet. I need to get someone who would actually bring upon a curse in the name of Yahweh so that I at least have a chance. So what he does is he sends officials and he sends money to a prophet whose name is Balaam. And he sends all of this. And Balaam uh, receives these officials and, and they say, will you come to Balak and will you actually do this? So Balaam goes to God and God says, don't go. So Balaam comes back, says, no, you're not going. Balak doesn't uh, receive that. So he actually sends more officials and sends more money. And at this time, um, Balaam actually goes to God and God says, okay, well, you can go, but only do what I say. Only do what I say. Yet God was not pleased with the heart of Balaam. So what happens is Balaam goes to um, Balak and Balak actually takes him to this high place builds seven altars where they can see the entirety of the Israel army. And he says to Balaam, okay, I want you to curse the armies of Israel. Balaam goes to God and God says, I'm not going to curse them. I'm going to bless them. So, So Balaam, instead of cursing them, actually blesses them. Comes back to the king. The king's understandably a little bit agitated. I asked you to curse them and you bless them. This is the complete opposite to what you're supposed to do. So it takes them to another high place. And in this high place, they can't see the entirety of the um, Israel army, only a portion. Because Balak's thinking, okay, if you can't curse 100%, maybe you can curse 40%. I might have a chance. So does the same thing. Builds seven altars, says to Balaam, can you curse him? Okay, Balaam goes to God. God says, I'm still not going to curse him. I'm going to bless him. Second time, instead of getting a curse, Israel gets a blessing. And you can understand the king is getting really red hot at this stage. So they go to a third high place. And in this third high place, they can even see a smaller portion. Maybe, possibly with a smaller portion, at least maybe 10% might be cursed. Same thing happens. And instead of being cursed, three times Balaam blesses the armies of Israel. Balak the king is enraged. He threatens to send Balaam away with no money whatsoever. You did not do what I asked. And as you read this, you're thinking, wow, this is incredible. There was this, there was this plan. There was this strategy to, to destroy Israel and they didn't even know about it. And behind the scenes, God is still working. God is still protecting. God's hand is still upon them. Yet as we read the story forward... Israel almost get defeated. Something happened, something happened and Jesus uses this example to expose the real church problem of compromise that is happening in the church of Pergamum. What happened, we'll read Numbers 25 verse 1 to 3. When the Israelites who were camped at the Acacia, sorry my mouth, Acacia Grove, some of the men defiled themselves by having sexual relations with local Moabite women. These women invited them to attend sacrifices to their gods, so the Israelites feasted with them and worshiped the gods of Moab. In this way Israel joined in the worship of Baal of Peor, causing the Lord's anger to blaze against his people. Now picture this. Now picture this. Picture this. That they're on their way to the promised land. Picture this and God has blessed them so they're getting victory after victory after victory. They are literally seeing a hand move on their behalf. And then all of a sudden they're heading in this direction. It seems like they've made this sharp detour. There's this sharp left turn They're coming out of nowhere. So they're heading in this trajectory and all of a sudden they start doing these kind of practices. Things that are completely unbecoming for the people of God. It doesn't seem to make sense until you find out what the reasoning was. And the reasoning of this situation is actually explained to Moses in Numbers 31 verse 16. This is what happened. This is why there was such a sharp detour. They were the ones who followed Balaam's advice and enticed the Israelites to be unfaithful to the Lord in a pure incident. So that a plague struck the Lord's people. So Balaam, who could not curse what God has blessed, had seemingly given the king of Moab, Balak, another strategy to defeat God's people. And guess what? It almost worked. The strategy was send in the Moabite women, share in your cultural practices, and seduce the men to have sex with the women. And this is the example that Jesus gives to paint the picture of what is happening in the church of Pergamum. Revelation 2 verse 14. But I have a few things against you because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam. There's that name. Who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. You see, in this church, most are holding fast to the teaching of Jesus, but there are some who are holding on to corrupt teaching. And it's this teaching that endorses compromise. It's this teaching that endorses having one foot in the church and one foot in the world. It endorses participating in, in social practices of Pergamum that were not becoming of God's people. It's a teaching that endorse sexual immorality or that word porneia, having any sexual activity outside of the context of covenantal marriage. There were things on the outside that were entering on the inside. You see, a Trojan horse had been received and the Trojan horse was called corrupt um, teaching. Corrupt teaching. I think the story of Troy and the Trojan horse serves as a um, story, a metaphor that really teaches us about how compromise works. In the story, as you remember, the horse is placed just outside. Just pictures, just outside the city gates just outside a fortified city. After that, a lie is believed. The warnings are ignored and compromise is opened because that, uh, that horse is allowed to come on inside. And as you know, the compromise opens up the gates from the inside and the rest is history, as we know. And in this church, Jesus actually identifies two vulnerabilities, knowing that compromise is actually that close for each and every one of us. It exists just outside the city gates of your heart and my heart. And in light of that, Jesus is actually talking about two areas that have actually come in. You have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. First vulnerability, first place where compromise will actually try to get in is our Sexuality. Our sexuality. We have a different view of sex than the rest of the world has. For us as followers of Jesus Christ, for those who who worship Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we understand that sex is such a sacred, sacred thing. The world treats sex as just a common thing, just like an appetite. If you're hungry, you eat. If you have impulses, you have sex. But for us, we understand, we recognize that sex is sacred. When scripture says and speaks of the two shall become one flesh, that is a kind of representation. It is an imaging of the divinity, the trinity, as the divinity is three persons, but one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all together. As we come together in sexual intercourse in marriage, that is a picture portraying something of a divine nature. Therefore, sex is so, so sacred. Sex is whole body giving in the context of whole life giving. Your entire life. This is marriage between a man and a woman. All of my emotions, all of my resources, all of my finances, all of my body, I give to Andrea. And she does the same to me. Sex is sacred. And that's why it is targeted so much by Satan. The second vulnerability is a compromised lifestyle. That in this particular church, they were participating in, they were partaking of as cultural norms, and yet these things that they were participating in, these were not becoming of the church. These were not becoming of children of God. And you and I might be in situations, and I know I certainly do not go to certain places or do certain things, not necessarily because, like, well, basically because I know I'm not strong enough. I know I'm not strong enough. I am very much aware of my strengths and vulnerabilities. And as a result, I will not go to certain places. I will not do certain places. And there are things in our culture that seem normal to other people, but they are not becoming for the people of God. That's another vulnerability. That's another Trojan horse that sits just outside the city gates. But you'll notice in this address, you'll notice in this address, and this is the point, that this letter, this message, is not given to an individual it's not like John's actually writing this letter. Say to Dave, he's not writing to Dave. He is writing this address. He's saying to the church of Pergamum. This letter is written to the church, not to individuals. This letter is actually saying there is false, corrupt teaching that has has seduced some, and there is a stumbling block. There is compromise that has occurred for some, not the many, but for some. And it actually leaves us with a pending question as the church of Jesus Christ. Why haven't you addressed this issue? That's the pending question. Because the letter is given to the church. But in the context of giving the letter to the church, there are some. So to the church, what are you doing about this? Compromise is the point of relevance for any church today, especially where we are in 2020 a trojan horse is waiting at the gates of every single human heart my heart included and also your heart even as we sit in our lounge rooms this morning we need to understand and recognize and be sobered by the point and the fact that right outside the gate of our heart there is a trojan horse no one is exempt for this and from this jesus actually brings the remedy if we have allowed trojan horses to enter our heart From verse 16, he says, Therefore repent, or else I'm coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Repentance. It's a great positive word that we have somehow in our Christian tradition made a really negative word. Repentance, as we've spoken of many, many times, literally means to rethink everything. When Jesus says the kingdom of God is near, therefore repent, he is saying in light of God's kingdom, in light of Jesus' reign, Imagine what it would look like right here, right now, if Jesus was king. Well, in light of that renewal of your mind or in light of that imagination, rethink your entire life. And what Jesus is saying here, in light of my kingdom, in light of this paradigm, in light of who you are as children of God, rethink that situation. Rethink that compromise. Rethink absolutely everything else. And repentance is not just a rethink. It's actually a change in orientation. It's a change in direction as well. But a change in direction only comes from a change of thinking. So we have to change our thinking first so that our lives will be changed. And the scripture talks so much uh, about this thing, uh, about repentance. What's the goal of repentance? Well, um, last week, I think it was, in our Zoom prayer meeting at 6:30 in the morning, um, this scripture came up and it really highlighted what the goal of repentance is. Ezekiel 14 verse 5 says this, "I will do this to get this. I will do this to recapture the hearts of the people of Israel, who have all deserted me for their idols." A lot of people asking the question, "God, what are you doing right now?" The whole globe is paralyzed. What are you doing right now? Well, I think the answer is pretty simple when it comes to his church. He is wooing his church and he is wanting to recapture the hearts of his church. Because Trojan horses, they come unexpectedly. They come uh, deceptively. That's what makes a Trojan horse a Trojan horse. You and I have been in places where we have let things in those city gates of our hearts and compromises happen, every single one of us, and we did not mean to do it. There was a deception. There was a lie that we believed. And all of a sudden, something from the outside came to the outside. Trojan horses are everywhere. And when Trojan horses come in and when our hearts are compromised, our affection, the affection of our heart is weakened and our affections lead to other places other than God. So God is wanting to recapture our hearts. And God doesn't want to recapture our hearts so that our hearts are are strong for Colom Church of Christ. I hate to tell you that. And he doesn't want to capture our hearts so our hearts are strong for New Spring Church. I hate to tell you that. He doesn't want to capture our hearts so our hearts are strong for all these other things. No. God is wanting to capture our hearts so our hearts are strong for him and him alone. That's what he's doing right now. He's wanting to capture our hearts that our hearts will be strong for him. Proverbs 4:23 says guard your heart above all else for it determines the course of your life. It determines. The state of our heart determines absolutely everything. And when Trojan horses come and when compromise comes in and our affection is turned away from Jesus, well, that sets a course and a trajectory for our life. Therefore, God says, return to me, repent, let me recapture your heart. So your heart is strong for me and me alone. And that will determine the course of our life. And we find again that this correction is met with hope. Don't you love that about the Lord? That whenever he comes, I mean, the, the word of God does say that he, he disciplines those he loves. He dis- I mean, if you've ever been in a place where you've never been disciplined from the Lord, you should be worried. It's like, Jesus, am I yours or not? <laughs> and when we are disciplined from the Lord, we should actually say thank you. I may not have liked it, but at least I know that you love me <laughs> and I'm yours. But every time that God brings discipline, every time he brings correction is always given with hope. It's always given with hope. Verse 17 says, he who has an ear to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Again, to the churches. To him who's overcome, to him I will give some of the hidden manner, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. Right here today, let's make no mistake about it. There are Trojan horses that are waiting right outside of our hearts, right outside of those city gates, right outside of those fortified cities, your heart and my heart today. And for many of us, we hold fast to the teaching of Jesus Christ. Amen. Praise God. But in our churches, we need to acknowledge and we need to know that there are some who have been deceived. And Jesus' question to his churches, what are you going to do about that? Are you going to act in such a loving way that you actually come alongside and you actually bring people who have been lost, who have been deceived, so they can be coming back to the right righteous path? You see, this issue is not an individual issue. This is actually a church issue. Get this. This isn't even a senior pastor issue issue per se. Now, there's going to be a senior pastor issue and a leadership issue that's going to come later on. But for now, this is actually a church issue. I wonder if you've ever been deceived in your life. I have, many, many times. That Trojan horse has deceptively entered my heart. And from the inside, something was unlocked that allowed so much destruction to come in. And I need to let you know, me personally, I needed the love of other people to get me back on track. I needed a community of faith to come alongside me in love. And understand the ordering of these letters. Ephesus is all about love. Don't forsake love. Smyrna is about faithfulness. Remain faithful. Now we come to compromise, but it all begins with love. Everything that we do as brothers and sisters in Christ must be done in love. Otherwise you just become a Christian jerk. And let me tell you, we've got enough of them around. I, I do not want to see Christian jerks in Kalamunda or in New Spring Church. I want to see brothers and sisters in Christ who love each other enough to come alongside in love and in grace and say, you know what, I reckon you've been a little bit deceived right now. Let's go back to wholesome Christian teaching, good doctrine about Jesus Christ, and let's get our heart strong towards Him and not strong towards other things in this world. See, this is the message to the Church of Pergamum. And as we've already learned It's sent to the seven churches, which means it's sent to all churches. This is the message of Jesus Christ that is sent today to Cullamundra Church of Christ and to New Spring Church, that we would look out for each other because we have many who are holding fast. But some have let go and some need to be helped on the journey of life in a spiritual walk so they would return to these godly, righteous paths so that their hearts once again would be strong towards the Lord let me pray for you Father we thank you for this word this challenging word but what a beautiful word I pray for the hearts of our church Lord that our hearts will be strong towards you Holy Spirit come upon us now come and show us those places where compromises entered in that we would repent that we would change our thinking come and capture our hearts we pray Come and shape us in this season as Calamander and New Spring, that we would be a church that's full of beauty and wonder and mystery and grace, Lord. Father, that we would be a public spectacle to this world, that those will come and they would behold and they would see our risen saviour, Jesus Christ. Come and do something magnificent and do something otherly in our lives, in our families, in our communities, in our churches. We pray today in Jesus' name. Amen.